This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Today we're going to talk about avalanche. People who don't live in areas where there's snow sports and snow uh, question uh, the reason to study avalanche, well, the, the basic answer to that is it's a fundamental concept of wilderness medicine, and a lot of the principles transcend other topics. This uh, podcast does not in any way uh, prepare anybody for skiing in the backcountry to avoid an avalanche. This is a medical lecture that gives some data about an avalanche and things that you need to know, but if you're going to go backcountry skiing, this is not the lecture that allows you to do that. Most uh, all of avalanches uh, happen uh, uh, spontaneously during storms, usually because of an increased load of additional snowfall. Uh, a lot of uh, other reasons can cause uh, avalanches also, uh, melting uh, due to the solar radiation, rain, earthquakes, uh, just natural rock and ice falls. Uh, uh, safety personnel in ski resorts will trigger avalanches, and a lot of times skiers will do that. Snowmobiles is a is probably the greatest cause of uh, man-made avalanches. Um, but uh, contrary to a popular belief, avalanches are not triggered by loud sounds. And so, if a snowmobile does get to a place and triggers an avalanche, it's not the noise. Uh, just be, simply because the pressure from the sound is way too small in orders of magnitude to tri- uh, trigger an avalanche. Usually, injuries in avalanches in, uh, from avalanches in, has increased uh, considerably over the last two decades. Uh, some of this has to do with um, more people getting into the backcountry, but sadly, it's because people are getting into places where they shouldn't be. The vast majority of avalanche burials... Uh, the victim partially triggered the avalanche. Uh, it really is snowmobiles, however, that, that triggers the largest uh, group of backcountry users that are killed in avalanches, though the combined pressure uh, from the avalanche in the areas where they're able to go with it is the reason for that. Um, right from the get-go, we want to point out that the most critical factor in an avalanche survival is the amount of time someone is buried in the snow. Asphyxiation is the predominant mechanism of death among all avalanche victims, although trauma, uh, if you're being carried through trees, uh, can play a role also. Hypothermia is just rarely a cause of death among avalanche victims. Uh, When an avalanche gets going, they go really fast, and there's a lot of mass in it, so there's just tremendous amount of momentum. When they start, they start, of course, at zero miles per hour and then quickly move up to 100 miles per hour, and they can do that in just seconds. And so they just go very, very quickly. And that's one of the reasons people are caught is because they are uh, just taken away. When talking about factors which will uh, cause an avalanche, the slope angle should be among the very first things that comes to mind uh, when skiers and people go into the backcountry. And when you teach people about avalanche, you have to talk about the slope angle. It is truly the primary factor in every avalanche. Avalanches happen when basically there's four elements of snow are present. A slab of snow, a weak layer of snow, a trigger like new snow, and then, of course, the slope angle. 
that slope angle is generally considered to be 25 and 55 degrees. The way to think about that is that not all slopes are steep enough to slide. For example, you'll never see an avalanche on level ground because snow won't move on a level ground. And you'll never see an avalanche on the side of a 90-degree cliff. That's because snow doesn't collect on a 90-degree cliff, and so it can't. there's no snow to move. So somewhere between there, the angle is such that snow will become unstable and fall, and then it gets to a point where the angle is so steep it won't collect. And that number is generally uh, considered to be between 25 and 55 degrees. Look, you can conceivably get an avalanche, although uh, uh, not a very deadly one, down at 5 or 10 degrees, but it would move very little snow and not very fast. As the slope increases and snow begins to collect, when you get up to about 25 or 30 degrees, then the snow becomes incredibly unstable. And when you get to right about uh, 30 um, 36 to, say, 38 degrees, that is the point at which most uh, avalanches occur because at that angle, 36 to 38 degrees, there there is so much snow and the angle is such that avalanches will, will st uh, start to occur. Then as the slope begins to increase, uh, less and less snow builds up until finally when you're above 50, 55, and 60 degrees, there just is not much snow collecting on a slope to cause an avalanche. So a good rule of thumb is to remember that most uh, avalanches will occur uh, between uh, 25 and uh, uh, 55 degrees with the maximum number right at about 36 to 38 degrees where it's dangerous. There are different avalanche types. It's not so critical that you memorize these for medicine. But for just sake of completeness, a slab avalanche are really some of the most common ones. Um, they usually occur uh, during or just after a, a snowstorm and cause the most injury. These are uh, also referred to as wind, wet, or storm slab avalanches. Uh, uh, slab, avalanche, slab avalanches are usually comprised of kind of a relatively stable layer of snow over a relatively weak layer. Because these two layers are well beneath the snow surface, the danger is usually invisible, and so people will cross those slopes thinking that they're uh, safe. Uh, some clues for uh, the slab avalanches are like, oh, uh, cracking in the snow, collapsing snow, or uh, uh, a sinking of the snow, and those things should alarm people. And other avalanches are these loose, wet snow or the dry snow avalanches, and these usually occur any time when there's prolonged periods of elevated temperatures to warm up the snow surface. Uh, this happens usually more in the spring and even in the summer because avalanches do occur uh, year-round. Uh, avalanches primarily occur in the afternoon after the sun has had time to melt several centimeters of the snow on the surface, causing this loose, wet snow and causing it to move forward. Dry powder snow avalanches start at a single po point and then will grow into a fan shape as they uh, go down the mountain. These are typically smaller and less destructive uh, than the big, huge uh, slab avalanches. Dry snow slides are common to skiers and snowboarders after fresh and fallen snow. And uh, skiers will ski through these and have um, a little fear of them. And uh, this leads to a problem because if they ski through small dry snow avalanches, then there's sort of this feeling that all avalanches are safe. So we warn against those. The pathophysiology of an avalanche uh, follows the sequence of trauma that begins with acute airway obstruction, 
and then early asphyxia, late asphyxia, and then potentially hypothermia, although hypothermia is usually not the cause of death. Uh, only about one-fourth of avalanche victims have massive trauma as the primary cause of death. If a, if a victim is carried through trees and over rocks, then, it, then that number goes up. But if you take all uh, avalanches around the world, that is a, probably one of the best numbers that we have. But you do get multiple injuries, and spinal and long bone fractures are common. A, a blunt trauma to the head and the abdomen are also uh, common as victims can be dragged over rocks and uh, through the trees. One of the things that is, if you talk to people who've been in an avalanche, is a very interesting phenomenon, and that is that the, the pressure inside an avalanche is greater than the atmospheric pressure. The, the, the snow and the moisture in the avalanche is so much heavier than the atmosphere that snow is um, forced into the airway uh, of the people who are in the avalanches. This is just due to the very nature of snow pow uh, powder. A lot of people who uh, survive avalanches um, have to clear their airway of the snow uh, that has been uh, inhaled or forced into uh, the airway. So acute airway obstruction uh, is a real problem if you go to avalanche victims. Uh, when we do the March protocols, make sure that the airway is open, and usually it's just a lot of snow that can be in there. Uh, as far as uh, numbers and time, there is a, a number that is often quoted, and that number is usually around 18 minutes. This, uh, the charts that show this have been re uh, repeated and reproduced many, many times, that if someone is in, a, in an avalanche, that if you can get to them within the first uh, uh, 18 minutes, then there is a survival rate of about 91%. If you go beyond uh, that uh, 18 uh, minutes uh, and you go up to between 19 and 35 minutes, the survival rate drops to about 34%. If a victim in an avalanche uh, has their, uh, be, is able to move their uh, chest uh, so that they can breathe, uh, then the survival uh, depends upon the airspace that is created near and around the victim's face as the snow falls uh, downhill to a stop. All air pockets will ultimately fail, however, for two reasons. The first being the heat from the expired air causes an ice lens to form on the snow, air interface. Uh, that prevents continuous gas exchange. And the second is rebreathing expired air with increased carbon dioxide and decreased oxygen content will result in hypercapnia, hypoxemia, and an eventual death from asphyxiation. Avalanche victims die from trauma or asphyxiation far sooner than they die from hypothermia. There's been a lot of studies recently uh, to show that there are very few deaths uh, re that result from hypothermia. And while hypothermia can, great, can significantly increase the morbidity of the victims, it is uh, rarely in uh, the cause of death in a victim. So most injuries can be avoided from an avalanche by good decision-making, by minimizing the risk and traveling wisely with good techniques. And you should remember the uh, areas when you go where there are potential to have an avalanche. And if you avoid those high-risk terrains, then you will be safer. However, when it comes to risk uh, management, people behave and think differently. This is particularly true in young people where the risk of injury from avalanche is the highest. And when it comes to young people, particularly male, the people that are injured or caught in avalanches are the same people that drown on rivers. And these are the same people that are killed in car accidents 
and this is the high adolescent range between 18 and uh, 22. These are also the people that are, that are injured in uh, biking accidents. So some critical rules that you should follow uh, in getting an avalanche is when traveling on snow terrain, never go directly above any member of your party. Avoid terrain traps like cliffs, bodies of water, uh, crevasses, and uh, roads where debris piles up. Uh, if you hike in the mountains in the summer, you can see where the avalanches are uh, by seeing where the trees are not or bent over. So if you go skiing and avoid those areas like gullies and narrow valleys and those runoff zones uh, where avalanches that start further up the mountain can funnel through, uh, you will not be uh, caught in one. Traveling on ridge lines above avalanches start zone or in dense forests or, or, or well away from the vegetation is uh, also safer. Travel from one safe zone to another one person at a time. That is because if one exposed area needs to be crossed, never expose more than one person at a time. The reason for this is the really the only chance of uh, recovering an avalanche victim uh, if is companion recovery. If if uh, the pa- companion can't get you out and you have to wait for group uh, or uh, ski patrol recovery, then it really becomes body recovery at that point. So companion recovery, you can get up to 80% of the people buried uh, if you get them out quickly. But if uh, but ski patrol, the time is just too long, and then you're just looking for uh, bodies. When you are skiing, make sure that you're looking for red flags, such as collapsing, cracking snow, or sinking wet snow. Start on low-angle slopes that are less than 25 degrees before, before venturing into ste- uh, steeper slopes. This gives you the opportunity to better assess snow stability before traveling on more risky slopes. And one piece of advice is always call the Forest Service or Avalanche Forest uh, uh, Avalanche Forecast Centers in your area to look at uh, current conditions. And always carry avalanche uh, rescue equipment. And we don't do any of that in this podcast or even our textbooks. But these things are so numerous. Uh, include, but you'll need things like an avalanche uh, transceiver beacon, shovels, probes. And you need to practice using them. And again, if you're going to go in the backcountry, make sure that you take an avalanche safety course first. If you find yourself uh, with companions and you're skiing and and one of them is caught in an avalanche, it's simply got to be one of the most horrific things that you can imagine. Uh, You can go onto uh, the Internet and look at YouTube and you'll see multiple uh, uh, videos of people who've been caught in avalanches they're screaming and they're under snow and people are frantically d- digging them out. It, it, it's a terrifying scene. But if you do see someone, you should make every effort to maintain sight of the victim as they are pushed down the slope. Once the survivors lose sight of the victim, uh, uh, a mental note should be made of the area where the victim was last seen using fixed landmarks such as rocks and uh, trees behind them. Since more than one avalanche is possible in the same area, Extreme caution to be used by the rescuers to avoid getting caught in a second avalanche. So one mistake that people make is that if there has been an avalanche, there won't be a second. And that's just simply not true. There can be multiple avalanches in the same place. Uh, one member of the rescue party should be designated kind of like a team leader to go down there to stand at safe distance away uh, so that the other rescuers can be looking out uh, for the uh, for the victim. Transceivers, which are the beacons, shovels and probes constitute the basis of avalanche survival and rescue equipment. Transceivers work on the assumption that an avalanche victim can be found within the golden 18 minutes after burial. After 18 minutes, the 
chance of survival, as we said, decreases dramatically. So if a member of a party is buried in an avalanche, rescuers should switch their transceivers from the send position to the receive position, and they really do work. Make sure you learn how to use those in a course. Once they're on, the uh, the rescuers uh, can pick up that signal, and and if you're in the area, you can get into them uh, quite uh, quickly. Uh, using uh, a systematic pattern, rescuers then can home in on the victim's signal with their uh, receiving transceivers. A rule of thumb is to start at the place where the victim was last seen and then go downstream, making wider and wider switchbacks as you go. And again, this is what they teach you in an avalanche rescue course. So um, once a, a victim is found, and, and if you're following the rules, you really can find people and get them out within that 18 minutes. The big problem is hypoxemia and, of course, hypercapnia. These are the really great threats to life in an avalanche. If there hasn't been trauma, which is you, you, generally uh, down the list, most people ski on slopes rather than, than uh, through trees. Um, as with any victim, the primary attention should be given to the MARCH protocol because major trauma is associated with avalanche burials. Make sure you do uh, cervical spine precautions when extricating a victim from the snow. Uh, resuscitative efforts should continue on an asystolic uh, victim buried longer than normal, maybe even up to 45 minutes, especially if you've seen an obvious airspace in the identified area because they may be, um, they may be cold. Keep in mind that the patient's exposure to the environment if you, once you pull them out because it's, it's cold out. And um, while snow can be insulating uh, when they're in it, but once out, the victim uh, is then exposed to the wind and to the snow and to the other elements. So make sure you're uh, properly insulating the victim from that and don't forget those kinds of things. Um, and then any avalanche victim, even if they stand up and start walking, uh, probably should be evacuated out. Uh, but it, the, the, if there's a, a rule in this, uh, is the following that really must be enforced, and that is the best way to avoid being caught in an avalanche is not to be near the trigger points for an avalanche and just avoid them altogether. Um, follow the rules, take the courses, and not go anywhere. There are some things and some devices that you can wear that will increase your chance of survival if you're caught in one. But make absolutely no mistake about it, a person's primary goal is to never be in an avalanche. So we talk about the Avalon and we're going to talk about the ABS airbags. But these do not make you safer. Uh, these, these are there in, in just in case. Please avoid an avalanche. So uh, avalanche airbags are, are strapped onto the back, and they help people rise to the surface. They avoid the, the they obey the principle that, uh, like if you have a cereal that has nuts and uh, cereal flakes in it, uh, smaller, or in any anything really, smaller objects tend to wiggle their way down to the bottom. Larger objects tend to uh, float to the surface. So if you can make yourself larger in snow, then the idea is, is that you will tend to float to the top. So if you have an ABS airbag on and it's properly deployed, the chances of a complete burial are significantly reduced with it. But there's a lot of problems with these things. I mean, they could fail. You may not be able to deploy. Your hand may not be able to grab it. And so, again, avoid the avalanche. If you are going to the backcountry and you're all being good and you just want to be extra careful, then you can use one of these. The Avalon was developed uh, some time ago um, 
which is an incredibly ingenious device because during an avalanche burial, victims that aren't killed by trauma uh, usually, as we said, die by asphyxiation. Uh, The snow around them melts and it makes a little, uh, uh, an area in front of of the mouth where you can't uh, uh, extract the oxygen from the snow and the carbon dioxide is just rebreathed into the lungs. So the avalanche ameliorates this problem by drawing breath over a large surface area in front and pushing the warm exhaled carbon dioxide behind by the back. So this will buy additional time for rescuers to dig the victim out. So an ABS airbag will float you to the top and an avalanche will allow you to breathe a little bit longer under. But make no mistake about it, people who die in an avalanche have ABS airbags on and they have the avalanche on and you don't want to use those. So again, don't get caught in an avalanche is, is the main issue. Take a, a, an avalanche safety course. Remember the 18-minute uh, golden rule that you get people out. Remember that death is usually by asphyxiation, so opening the airway and getting oxygen into your lungs is important. Watching for underlying trauma and uh, 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 keeping them from developing hypothermia are all important. Safety of yourself and the other rescuers is important. And remember that uh, avalanches occur twice in the same place, uh, as we uh, had mentioned earlier. So don't be mistaken that you're safe if an avalanche has come down. Well, okay, this ends the the podcast on avalanches. And again, uh, thank you for listening. 